0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that you would help me now to speak uh, your word truthfully and clearly and that every one of us would know your word's good work in our lives, helping us to trust Jesus and equipping us to live for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In a world full of death unbelief in the face of the offer of life is a puzzle. Of course, there are legitimate questions about whether someone can deliver on their promise, questions that do need to be answered before you trust the one promising life. But where a person demonstrates that he has the power of the God who is the giver of life and does the work of God, a power seen in healing and feeding, in rule over creation and spirits, and where his life is without blemish and his words true, unbelief is a puzzle. The unbelief of Jesus' first hearers, who knew of his mighty acts, who had the witness of these signs of their scriptures of John the Baptist, is a puzzle. Our unbelief, where we have reliable and tested witness to Jesus' victory over death in his resurrection, where we know his word is stronger than death, is a puzzle. We may not feel that. We may think unbelief is normal, even the reasonable position. But think about it. We die. We know the aching grief of that. We feel the vanity, the fleetingness of our lives. And here is someone who promises life, Jesus who in his life showed that he had the power of the living, true God and spoke the words of God, who was killed. And having said he would be killed and in three days rise again, did rise again in the body in which he had died. Rise to deathless life, from where he gives his spirit, as he said he would, to all who repent and believe. Jesus offers life. But we don't flock to him. So often we don't want to know. We look for reasons not to believe as if we want to die. Now, isn't that a puzzle? In John chapters 7 and 8, Jesus encounters unbelief. And in chapter 9, he'll work a sign that exposes both its folly and guilt. In John 7 and 8, we learn the outcome the character and origin of our unbelief. And we'll also learn why Jesus will, in the end, not be limited in any way by human unbelief. And God willing, you will be challenged to leave your unbelief to find life in trusting God's Son, Jesus. Challenged to believe and keep on believing. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. In these first two verses, John tells us two things we need to know to understand the conversations that follow. The first is that the Jews, by whom John means the Jewish religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. This has been the case since the healing of the man on the Sabbath in John 5, as you see there in chapter 5, verse 18. And we are never allowed to lose sight of their desire to kill in this conversation in chapters 7 and 8, with its many references to either seeking to seize Jesus or killing Jesus, which are listed for you in the outline. Chapters 7 and 8 are, in fact, bookended between references to their determination to kill Jesus chapter 7 verse 1 and chapter 8:59 where they pick up stones to stone him in fact Jesus makes that determination to kill him the central issue by directly challenging the Jews about it in his first conversation with them 7:19 why do you seek to kill me why Why would you want to kill the author of life? In many ways, this introductory verse, verse 1, does not just give us the context of the conversation, it highlights the issue in our unbelief. For this determination to kill is the inevitable outcome of unbelief and highlights both its horror and its tragedy. Its horror for Jesus is good, thoroughly good, There's not a shadow of wickedness or evil in him. He is true, kind, he does good. And the tragedy of unbelief. For this is seeking to kill life. For Jesus is the one who is life. He is the word become flesh, the one through whom creation, life, comes into being, in whom is life and that life is the light of men. This unbelief is seeking to extinguish the life which is our life and light to make death and darkness prevail. And seeking to kill Jesus is the inevitable result of unbelief. You see, unbelief, refusing to trust Jesus, is not neutral. It is not just indifference. In the end, it is rejection and it is violent rejection for the claim of God upon the lives of his creatures is insistent. The claims of his son, Jesus, to rule are always there. He is always there in our conscience, in his creation at the end. You see, these Jewish officials are not especially bad. In fact, they are good people, moral in the main, people concerned for their national life, who are in Jesus, confronted with the presence of their creator, with his insistent truthfulness, his insistent righteousness, his insistent love, his insistent expectation that he be believed. His presence, his very existence, challenges our lies, exposes our selfishness, threatens our determination to be the rulers of our own life. So you might consider yourself a good person, but recognise that the response of the Jews will in the end be your response if you will not believe Jesus because you will do whatever it takes to get Jesus out of your life. Why do you seek to kill me? Well, that's a question not just for the Jewish leaders but for our race and for you if you are not believing The second piece of essential information we find in verse 1 is that the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles, is at hand. We're reminded of this throughout chapter 7. And as we see or learn in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Feast of Booths was the third of the three great feasts in the Jewish calendar when every Jewish man was to appear before the Lord. It celebrated the final end of the harvest. It was a festival that was to be marked with joy as they celebrated the blessing of God in the fruit of the land. It was also a festival at which they remembered by living in booths, that is, temporary shelters, how the Lord had brought them through the wilderness to the land at the time of the Exodus, (coughs) reinforcing that the Lord was the provider of this permanent good home they now enjoyed. In Jesus' time, we can learn from Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian and rabbinic sources, that the celebration was associated with water and light. The blessing of God in providing life, giving water, in giving the rains and bringing water from the rock in the wilderness was remembered in a daily water-pouring ceremony when water was carried by the priests in a golden pitcher through the streets of Jerusalem and then poured out on the altar in the temple. And the light of the pillar of fire that provided guidance and protection in the wilderness was remembered in lighting giant lamps in the temple during the nights of the feast. At this festival, that rejoiced in the life given and sustained by God, unbelief threatens death. And Jesus promises himself as the source of the life-giving water and light of God, promises the life that will never run out and the light that will always guide and protect, the light of life. Well, the first encounter with unbelief, and some of us may be able to relate to this, happens in Jesus' own family. (coughs) His brothers say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers, you see, don't doubt that Jesus is doing mighty works. What they don't believe is what Jesus has said about himself and the purpose of his coming, that he is the bread of God that gives life to the world. You see, his brothers, like the crowd we met in John 6, think that Jesus should be gathering a popular following, getting power and influence in the world through his mighty works. In his response, Jesus makes clear that he does not take direction from them. He has a work to do that is given him by the Father that will happen at the time, the time set by the Father. They have no such work, no set time, So the timing of their actions is indifferent. It can happen at any time. And verse 7, their actions won't expose them to the world's hatred for they still belong to the world. Humanity united in its unbelief against God. But Jesus, coming from the Father and doing the Father's will, is not of the world. And his words and actions show that the world's rebellion against God is evil. His coming shows that people love darkness rather than light, that they hate the exposure. Jesus will not take direction from his brothers or join himself to them. So he will not go up to the feast with them and so stays, verse 9, in Galilee when they leave. But later, at his time, he goes up. There's no deception. He said he was not going up and he didn't go up. And when he goes up, he goes up not just at a different time but in a different manner, in private, not publicly and for a different purpose. He teaches, not doing spectacular works to attract an admiring crowd. That is, Jesus goes up in obedience to the Father, not to meet human expectations. And what he encounters in the temple at the feast is unbelief whether it's the determined unbelief of the Jews, the Pharisees and temple authorities, or the confused unbelief of the crowds, the pilgrims who went up to the feast, or the Jerusalem locals. And in this encounter with unbelief, Jesus exposes the character of unbelief, both theirs and ours. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews marvelled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You might at first think that the marvelling at Jesus' teaching by the Jews in verse 15 showed some kind of softening in their attitude, a kind of grudging respect. Not so. They are damning with faint praise. They say Jesus' teaching is just basic The word used is actually a word for letters, grammata, just just basic teaching. Mind you, they add, even that's a wonder. No wonder he can produce that seeing. He is untaught, unlearned, not someone who has sat at the feet of recognised teachers, their teachers, and acquired knowledge. But Jesus uses their comment as an opportunity to engage them and show the origin of their failure to believe in him. You see, in dismissing and demeaning his teaching, they're dismissing and demeaning God because verse 16, his teaching is from the Father who sent him. And if, verse 17, their will was to do God's will, they would have recognised that, that Jesus' teaching comes with God's authority because he seeks the Father's glory. That is, he is a faithful messenger, seeking to fulfil the purpose for which the Father has sent him into the world. And because of that, verse 18, his teaching is completely true and reliable. It is the word of the living God. But, verse 19, here is the problem. The Jews don't seek to do the Father's will. They have Moses' law given by God. But none of them, says Jesus, does God's law. They show by their actions that they are not those whose will is to do God's will. You see, the problem they have with Jesus and his teaching, this murderous rejection and unbelief, is in reality a problem they have with God. It's a problem at the heart of not wanting in their hearts to trust and obey God, to confess him as their Lord, as their rightful Ruler in submitting themselves to his law. Now that was pretty confronting for those Jews. You see, they were claiming they opposed Jesus, wanted to kill Jesus because of their loyalty to God, their obedience to God. But Jesus says, think again. Why do you want to kill me? Think again. You might give reasons for not believing in Jesus. Think again. Is it fundamentally a problem of the heart, of not wanting God to be God, of not wanting to acknowledge his right to rule your life, to tell you how to live, and so not wanting to hear, to receive his word in Jesus? Well, the crowd here, pilgrims from outside Jerusalem, distinguished from the people we'll meet in verse 25, being less informed about the Jewish officials' intent, are shocked by Jesus bringing that intent out into the open. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. They can't believe it. They say, Jesus, you're paranoid, you're crazy. But Jesus responds by continuing to engage not just them, but the Jews, In verse 21, he refers back to the healing in John 5 done in Jerusalem. He's not saying he has done only one work, but that this is the one they have fixed on to justify their unbelief. And he says to them, let's think about your using of that healing to condemn me. And here he argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, you all insist that a boy is to be circumcised on the eighth day, whether or not that day is a Sabbath, just to keep the law of Moses, which commanded that uh, a boy be circumcised on the eighth day, though circumcision is older than Moses, coming from Abraham. So, says Jesus, (coughs) you admit a kind of hierarchy in keeping the law, an obedience that is more important than keeping the Sabbath. And being circumcised was seen as more important. It was seen as being older and more fundamental to belonging to the people of God. Circumcision was seen as bringing someone into the covenant, and so it was a kind of perfecting right of making a boy whole, fit to belong, and a sign of the blessing of relationship with God. So, says Jesus, if there is an obedience more important than keeping the Sabbath, why can't you recognise that making a whole man whole, fit, healthy, is part of that obedience. That wholeness is more important than circumcision, more fundamental to enjoying the blessing of God, to participating in the life of God's people, more important than the Sabbath. Judge, he says, verse 24, with righteous judgments. That is, judgments in line with God's revealed character. Think about what is pleasing to him, says Jesus, and not just about appearance stop in your unbelief from looking for a quick way to dismiss jesus without grappling with god's reality that's what he says to them and he says to us (coughs) do you rely on superficial judgments to avoid thinking about god who he is and what pleases him to avoid thinking about whether jesus is the truth from god you know, superficial religious judgments like this one. God can't have a son. But think, if he's all alone, how can he be loved? Oh, one person can't die for others. Well, can't God himself pay the cost of forgiving? Oh, and superficial judgments used by the non-religious. All religions are the same. Well, if you think sharing some common features make things the same, think again. A car without an engine and a car with an engine have a lot of common features, but they are infinitely different in terms of getting you anywhere you want to go. Oh, here's another, all Christians are hypocrites. Have you met all Christians? And let's face it, there's always room for more hypocrites. uh oh, Christians, sorry, good, uh, okay. You see, unbelief, a problem of the heart, supported by superficial dismissive judgments. And our Lord also shows us that unbelief is so often overconfident in what it thinks it knows. The locals, the people of Jerusalem are a bit more in touch with what the Jewish authorities intend to do and so they start to wonder, verse 26, about Jesus, wonder if official inaction means the authorities really know Jesus is the Christ. But they dismissed the idea that Jesus could be the Christ. Why? Well, there was a belief that the Christ would appear suddenly without any build-up, any previous activity. But Jesus was well-known. He'd been active for a while. They were even discussing him, so he couldn't be the Christ. Jesus' response is that they did not know as much as they thought they did. You know me, and you know where I come from. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So he repeats their claim to know him. But he reminds them of something he has said often by now that should have led them to question what they know, that, He is someone who is sent. And so the only way to truly know Jesus and know where he has come from is to know the one who sent him. And in their unbelief and sin, they do not know him. Jesus knows him. And so Jesus is the one who should be listened to about his identity and purpose. He's the authority about who he is and what he has come to do. But they don't believe because they think the little they know is all there is to know. So they stop listening. It's like us, isn't it? We think we know. We mistake our partial and limited knowledge for all there is to know. And we draw conclusions then that bolster the unbelief that our hearts desire. Thinking the little we know is all there is to know, we're quite happy to tell God what he can and can't do, what he can and can't expect from us, and to dismiss him when he doesn't meet what we know. Perhaps we don't know what we think we know. And that Jesus from the Father who knows all knows better. Well, Jesus' response causes a disturbance. The attempt to arrest him fails because Jesus' time is set by the Father. (coughs) But the disturbance comes to the attention of the temple authorities, the Jewish officials. And so they send some of the temple police to arrest Jesus and Jesus' response shows not only that he is in control of his coming and going, but that those who want to judge Jesus do not have a clue about who Jesus is and his purpose in coming, that they're operating on an entirely different plane. Verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus speaks this way repeatedly in the gospel. He's speaking of his work, his death, and rising and ascending to the Father. His movement is subject to God, already planned by God. And so he is not subject to them or us. And he is beyond them and their possibilities. But the authorities don't have a clue. Verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They wonder where Jesus could go beyond their reach. The Greeks, they are clueless. And that shouldn't surprise us, really, should it? God is so much greater than us, his plans and possibilities, so far beyond us. But all the time, unbelief makes what we think is possible the limits of God's possibilities, all the time shrinking God to fit our small understanding. So often the God we are not believing in is an idol of our imagination, made and then so easily dismissed, because he's not greater than ourselves, an idol of our imagination because we refuse to come to God and be taught by him and not the true God for whom all things are possible. And so often the Jesus we are not believing in is some pale shadow of the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, a limited first century man and not the eternal son becomes flesh who knows who he is and why he came. Unbelief, issuing from our hearts, content with superficial judgments, overconfident in its knowledge, failing to reckon with the difference between us and God. Thankfully, Jesus is not deterred from doing the will of God, pursuing the work that the Father has given him by our unbelief, by the hostility of our world. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they were, as I've said, celebrating God's provision for the continuation of life in the water he provided, the water from the rock in the wilderness, the water from the sky year after year in the land. But the life that water gives runs out. We know that it leaves us thirsty for life, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for a love that will not fail us, thirsty from grief and loss and weariness. Jesus says he is the fulfilment of what the Feast of Booths pointed to, what the provision of water in the wilderness pointed to. They pointed to God as the source of life, a life that, like his life, is inexhaustible, the life of the age to come in the presence of God in the new heaven and earth. And Jesus says he brings that life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He will give that life to all who come to him. It will never run out. It is a life within us that will never run dry. And verse 39 makes clear that under the picture of water, Jesus is speaking of the spirit. Jesus gives believers the life of the life-giving spirit promised in the Old Testament, the spirit who is sometimes spoken of in Isaiah, say, so, <coughs> in pictures that, uh, of turning the wilderness, the dry, barren wilderness into a fertile gra- garden. Or in Ezekiel, is spoken of as giving life to dead bones. But you notice that the promise here precedes the provision. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The coming of the Spirit to those who believe in Jesus, to each one of us who believes in Jesus, must wait until Jesus is glorified. Now, in John's Gospel, Jesus' glorification is his crucifixion, resurrection and return to the Father. The coming of the Spirit to Jesus' people depends on the successful completion of his work, the work of his hour, as he describes it in John 12. He must go before the Spirit can come, and it must be so. Remember, Jesus testifies that the works of the world, of us when we're rebelling against God, are evil. He says that our rejecting of God, our excluding of God, is sin that leads to more sin. The grief our selfish actions and unkind words bring on the world, sin that deserves judgement, sin that excludes us from God's holy presence. So how could we ever live at peace with the just God who is rightly angry with our sin? How can the Spirit of the Holy God, the Holy Spirit, make his home with us, give us his life where we are still unclean because of our sin? Our sin has to be taken away by God's provision, the Lamb of God, Jesus. We must be cleansed. And only the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins can make us clean. Only Jesus, by his death, can make us fit for the spirit, make us those who can know the inexhaustible life of God within us. Only the ascended, reigning Jesus, who has all authority, can pour out the spirit on those who trust him. Now think for a moment how great our God is, how great The salvation he brings through Jesus as you hear this promise in the context of this murderous rejection. Here is inexhaustible life through the death of the one who has life in himself. Here is glorification as the Son through the rejection by his people. Here is vindication of Jesus' truth and trustworthiness. Through their murderous unbelief, through their hostility, they glorify Jesus and in his death and rising, he becomes the one who can cleanse us and give us his spirit. Jesus' words create a stir. Some of the people are moved to want to recognise in Jesus one sent from God, the prophet like Moses or the Christ. Others find reasons not to believe The crowd can't make up its mind. There's debate and division, but no belief. And Jesus' words impress those sent to arrest him. Verse 46, the officers say, no one ever spoke like this man. But despite the testimony of their own, this appeal to listen, the Jewish officials are unmoved. And these champions of the law continue lawless when Nicodemus Verse 51 raises the standards of the law that must be met before someone is condemned. They dismiss him as a Galilean, a partisan provincial. And so they actually confirm Jesus' observation. None of you keeps the law. So they say they are God's people. It's a puzzle, isn't it, this determined unbelief? Why? Why Why are they so blind to their own hypocrisy? Why this determination to kill Jesus? Well, Jesus will go on to fully answer that question for us in chapter 8. There he'll bring us face to face with the depth of our unbelief, the depth of our problem with God. But for now, here Jesus offers life, eternal life, A sure promise because Jesus is now glorified. He reigns at the Father's side and he gives his spirit as all those who trust Jesus know. If you do not yet believe in Jesus for life, will you recognise and abandon your unbelief and come to Jesus for life? Do you see in yourself a determination to not acknowledge the rule of God over your life, which up to now has made you determined not to really engage with Jesus? (coughs) Do you see distorted and superficial judgments because you have just wanted to dismiss Jesus? Could you be too confident in what you claim to know? Do you see that there is actually so much more to know and Jesus come from God knows the truth, and should be believed. Is it time to change your mind and seek a changed, a new heart, a new life from Jesus? And as you think about that, do you recognise where persisting in your unbelief will bring you? Killing Jesus, who is wholly good, embracing death forever, in rejecting the God who is life. Let him who is thirsty, says Jesus, come to me and drink. He is calling you. He lives, he calls. Hear him and call out to him. And then come and talk. But if you're a believer, hopefully you've not been sitting there thinking, I've been talking about somebody else. Because this scripture has been given for your instruction and encouragement as well. Do you recognise the persistence of unbelief even in your belief? That not wanting to hear because you don't want to change, to do God's will where it conflicts with your desire, whether it's for money or recognition or sexual satisfaction, or you don't want to hear because you don't want to have to think of God in ways that will separate you from your peers or family. Do you recognise that? wanting to make yourself and what you want and think you can do the measure of what God can be and expect of your obedience. Do you recognise that in yourself? Or oh, do you see in yourself a taking refuge in superficial engagement with God, fearful that he might want more of your love or your time or your life? Believer, unless rooted out, Such quiet, lazy unbelief will bring you to a point where you will want to stop listening to Jesus. For he will not step back from being the eternal son, the judge and saviour of the world, the only way to God. And he will not step back from calling for all your love and trust seen in doing his will. So get rid of unbelief know Jesus in knowing his word, know he can be trusted in all he says and in all he has taught his apostles to teach us, know the living water he offers to all who believe in him, not as a prize but as a gift. Trust him wholly and embrace the life he alone offers to the praise of our rejected yet reigning Saviour. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would root out unbelief from our hearts, that we would see it and hate it and turn to trust your Son wholly, Jesus, the giver of life who has life in himself and who pours out upon all who trust him the life of your spirit, that life that wells up in us forever to eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.